Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. I'm at back in the studio, Thrive Deeper, episode 179, Mm -hmm. would you believe? There you go. My goodness, 179. Been doing this a long time. <laughs> well, we're actually looping back around, which is which is exciting because yeah. we get to take a second look at some of these things. Yeah. After uh, I don't know, uh, and a deeper years. a deeper dive. Yeah. And and I found with Ezekiel, man, this is an interesting book. The book of Jeremiah, there's quite a lot of repetition. I yes. lo- I, I love the book of Jeremiah because it's so heartfelt. Ezekiel, there's a level of complexity to Ezekiel, but it's also what makes it so interesting. Yes. There are so many notable things throughout this. So lots to talk about yeah, today, yeah. Stu. Definitely. As I was sort of preparing, I'm reading and going, man, there's some there's some really interesting things that we'll we'll unpack, I'm sure, yep. uh, today. So listeners, we are picking up uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 21, working through to chapter 32 today. And in historical context here is that Ezekiel is in the Babylonian exile with the people. This is probably before, at this point in time, uh, Judah has fallen, or at least Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, at least Ezekiel doesn't know that. At this point in time, it would, would we would understand. But he's prophesying about the judgment that's coming, mm. uh, and the judgment that's going to come not only uh, to Jerusalem, but ultimately through this passage about the judgment that's going to come mm. to the region and to all the nations of the known world, really, at the time. But also insights into God's plans for restoration for the nation. Mm, And the oracles of restoration are really going to begin uh, in in the the second half of the book. At this stage, yeah, we're squarely in the lead up to the final destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So there's been... The Babylonians have come in now already a, a few times, and they have spared the city, but the final destruction, the final stroke, is going to be this siege, yes, and then the final destruction in uh, 586 BC. And remembering that Zedekiah had been appointed by uh, the Babylonian yep. king, uh, but then he decided to rebel after about 10 years, I think, and this is where the final kind of, uh, the Babylonians had had enough. Nebuchadnezzar was coming in, and as you mm. say, this was where we're at right at this point in time. So Nebuchadnezzar, and this is something that was evident we picked up on this theme, Stu, when we looked at the book of Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar throughout is seen as a sword in the hand of God. He, yes. is, he is the sword of God's judgment. It's interesting here in chapter 21 that he says, I will draw my sword from its sheath, that's Nebuchadnezzar, mm. and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. And it's interesting, again, this to note this corporate way of thinking that Everyone is affected, and the people are treated as a whole. Now, Ezekiel's already dealt with the idea that we're not suffering for each other's sins, mm. but there are corporate consequences. Yeah. So even though there's not corporate guilt in one sense, there is, there are, however, corporate consequences. And we'll see this as we go through yeah, this. Absolutely. It, it, in, in other words, it matters to everyone how anyone else's – Yes. What everyone else's do it does actually matter because – God wants to treat his people as a whole. And that's, I think, a very important, very important theme here. Yeah, that's great. He says, 
interesting, again, you know, we've often noticed how personally the prophets have been drawn into this. And of course, Ezekiel is remarkable because he has to act out all of these things. And we're yep. not done with that. No. There's some quite and, remarkable and elements. And of that, remember the there? reason Ezekiel has to act this out is very early on in the book. Remember God silenced him mm. where he couldn't speak except for when God gave him specific things to say. That's right. So he was having to act out a lot of these things because yep. we're going to see towards the end of this, or I think maybe as we go into the next section, where God at, uh, releases him that's to right. be no, able that's to speak. In, that's in today's, yeah. uh, we'll cover yeah. that in today's episode. So in verse 6, you, he says, Therefore, groan, son of man, groan before them. Uh, he's in exile yes. and the yeah. elders of Judah in exile, wondering what's happening back home and are we going to, you know, is Egypt going to come and save them and Babylon's going to be destroyed and we'll be set free? Yeah. Well, no, that's not going to happen. But they're coming to consult with uh, Ezekiel. They've, they're recognizing he's a prophetic guy, there's something going on with him. And so God says, groan before them with a broken and bitter grief. And when they ask you, why are you groaning? You'll sh- you shall say, because of the news that is coming. Probably, you know, what he's being called to do here is the customary funereal grief, grief, you know, the visual grief, visual yeah. grief. That's yeah. right. And so that they had a question, and why are you acting, acting as though you're, there's a funeral, yeah. there's a uh, in an informal grief. Well, Who's it's, died kind of thing. That's right. It's mm. because this is now happening. This mm. is imminent now, mm. this destruction uh, of Jerus- Jerusalem. And so he's called to start grieving uh, in anticipation of that. Interesting thing to, uh, as part of this prophecy, because this is now happening. This is actually yeah, unfolding now. Moment, right so moment, Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. right, right now. And this is, I think, remarkable because he says... It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take. So when Nebuchadnezzar came in, would he go to Jerusalem first or would he go to the Ammonites? Now, in the ancient world, when you made decisions, uh, there was some recourse to strategic advantage. But a big part of the decision making was uh, consulting the omens. Yes, and and so they would practice a number of different forms. You know, they would one they would use uh, arrows symbolically. Another one they would practice ecstasy, which is cutting open the animal, yep. examining the, the, liver. the liver. I don't know what um, that was meant to tell you, but yeah. And then you'd consult idols. You'd yeah. you'd do there'd, there'd be something there that you. So he does all of these three things. Mm. But Ezekiel's, and this is the <laughs> this is the interesting thing about that. He's predicting Ezekiel is predicting what the outcome of the omens will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is significant because it shows that God God's is actually even, you know, of course, I- I- yeah. even across that, it shows the supreme, the, the superiority of the biblical prophets yeah. to the omens because the biblical prophet already knows what the omen is going to do and where he's going to go as a result of the omens. Really interesting yeah, totally. moment there. That's from um, verse 21 of, of chapter 21. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork at the road, the junction of the two mm. roads, mm. Uh, to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols, and he will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he is to set up battering rams to give the command to slaughter, to sound the battle cry. So there's the sense here in that God is going to make this lot fall so that because this is the, the sword in God's yeah. hand, I'm going to cause this lot through... The, the omens. Yep, and the omens. I'm yep. going to cause it to go this way. Yeah. So ultimately, God is sovereign. There's no sense of, uh, yeah, you know, in, any other way of things working than that. Um, so that's uh, interesting to note there, Stu. 
So as we go into chapter 22, again, this corporate way of thinking comes back. You know, he says, for example, here, see how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. In you, they have treated, he's talking about God's people. In you, they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you, they have oppressed the foreigner, mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Uh, Verse nine, in you are slanderers. Uh, In you are those who eat at mountain shrines. Verse 10, in you are those who dishonor their father's bed. Verse 11, in you, notice that, and it keeps going, actually. Uh, In you, in you, this is actually the problem. This is a problem for all of you. Yeah. Because judgment is coming because of the things that are being done in your midst. Mm. It's, it's as, in some sense, everyone is going to bear the consequences uh, yeah. of these in my In my translation, interestingly, it uses the term one man as though there's someone doing all of these things, at least someone doing all of these things, essentially. Yeah, as right. As opposed okay. to in you, it says one man does this and another man does that and one man does this. Uh, so interesting. Yeah, yeah but the, the sense of it is... Everyone's guilty. Yeah, here. that's right. Well, not um, guilty. Everyone's going to suffer the consequences yeah, that's of this right. cause. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the problems, uh, of course, and this is brought out in in chapter 26, and this is a very significant verse, Stu. I'll just point to this for a moment. It says, Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. Mm. They teach that there is no difference between the clean and the unclean. Mm. This is something, this is absolutely vital. This was built in to the Levitical law. God was training his people constantly to distinguish between the common, the, and, the profane, and, and, and the, the sacred and the profane. Yep. You, make sure you tell the difference between those two things yeah. because he was calling them to be separated out. You are a holy people mm-hmm. to reflect a holy God. And so be separate and get used to recognizing some things are sacred. And those things that are sacred cannot be treated in just about any other way. Yeah. And, uh, and I think this is important because this is one of the things uh, when we stray from God, this is one of the key things that goes wrong. We lose this sense of difference, of, of distinction between the sacred and the profane. Yeah. It, it's this, and, and we see that even in our society, there's, there's no real, everything's, you know, everything's up for grabs. There's yeah. no sense of the sacred. Yeah. I mean, that word gets thrown around a lot, but this is very, very important uh, well, and particularly, yeah. you know, in today's age, if we think about, and not necessarily in today's age, you think about the sacredness of, of human life yeah. uh, and even the way we treat people that maybe we don't agree with or don't get on with, you mm. know, we, we we often don't treat them with the sacredness yeah. that they should be treated, that's right. you know, every single person. Yeah, that's um, right. Absolutely. He says down in verse 30, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall to stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. He's going back a little way now and saying that there was no one really to intercede yeah. for this city. They're, they've completely lost uh, lost the plot. And he'd actually commanded the prophets not to intercede for the city earlier yeah, he, as well. that's right. Yeah, he had, because there, there came a point where yeah. it, it was it had past to be the purified. point of not re- It had to be returned, purified, that's otherwise. That's right, yeah. Yep. The, the rebellion of, of Israel and, and the use of metaphor is very strong in the uh, in the prophets, and we have in chapter twenty-three mm. this parable of the two sisters. So the two sisters are Israel and Judah, Judah. Mm. and uh, we get this story of these two sisters. The older is named uh, Ahola, and the uh, younger is named Aholabah. Uh, uh, mm. So uh, Ahola means her tent, and 
that's probably a reference to a place of worship, like a pagan shrine. Yep. Uh, that's talking, uh, Ahola is representing the older yep. sister is representing Israel. Israel. The other daughter is Aholabah, That's she stands for Jerusalem. And mm. interesting, the meaning of that is my tent is in, in her. Yeah. It's interesting. So yeah. the first is her tent. She's mm. doing her own th- thing mm. uh, in setting up their own shrines, but the uh, the name Aholabah means my tent is in her. So that's God's shrine. Jerusalem. So in a way, yeah. they had rebelled, the northern kingdom had rebelled against God by worshipping other gods, but because the shrine was in Jerusalem, there was even more serious offense really was uh, profaning the name of the of God who was in their midst. And that yeah. becomes an important theme yeah. throughout uh, Ezekiel's uh, prophecies. Uh, it is, I would say, Stu, uh, R-rated. Uh, you know, yes. I'd give this an R rating, this parable of the two sisters. It's very explicit yes. language here. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. of course, um, sexual sin is famously used throughout the prophets, in fact, right into the New Testament, uh, sexuality uh, becomes the image of choice to describe sin generally. Mm. Was that because Baal, a, a big part of Baal worship mm. was, you know, that Ashtar, the whole Ashtarapol thing and the whole sexual promiscuousness and, mm. you know, worship and all Yeah, that so th- there were aspects of sexual practice yeah. involved in these various cults and there were shrine prostitutes. That actually yes. extends right into the New Testament period. Yeah. That's still a big issue, actually, in, in the, and it's behind some of the things that Paul says, for example, in Corinthians, Corinthians and so yeah. forth. Mm. So this becomes an ongoing issue. But it's interesting, actually, the connection of sexuality with idolatry. At, at another level, you know, our sexuality is really the inner sanctum of our sacred selves. And so it, it is a... It's a very intimate point of access. It's a very soulful thing, sexuality. It's yeah. never just physical. Yeah. And talk about, you know, I said before about distinguish, distinguishing between the sacred and profane. I mean, sexuality in our culture is treated as something very profane. It's just, it's there for pleasure and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter and it's all just physical. And yet deep down we know that it's not just physical because mm-hmm. when our sexuality is violated in some ways, there's a very, very deep and and, and I would say spiritual kind of trauma yes. uh, that goes with that that cannot be accounted for except mm. in the understanding that something absolutely sacred has been violated and there's yeah. this terrible sense of, of, of violation. Of, yeah. of violation. So, yeah. so the connection between sexuality and spirituality throughout Scripture is a very, very close one. And um, mm. it's often, you know, some of the, the most extreme forms of shame that as a pastor that I know that people carry often relates to uh, to sexuality because it really goes uh, it goes very deep and and so you see that connection here in the way that their rebellion is described it's described in very sexualized mm. terms and that's customarily the way that it's done because in a sense what he's saying is that this idolatry has gone to the inner sanctum of their lives this mm. is what you know mm. that, that the idols have gained access to a place in their lives that should have been reserved for for, for Yahweh God mm. alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's the idea of the, of a very, you know, very um, explicit description uh, of this. Uh, and of course, down in verse uh, thirty-one here, we have this mention of this cup that, because of all of this. God is going to hand her the cup of God's wrath. Yeah. It's a customary uh, way of depicting uh, your just deserts. Mm. 
So because Israel had already drunk the cup and Judah hadn't learnt from Israel, they were now going to drink the same And that's the issue here, that the younger sister had not learned from the older sister. And so now the cup is being handed to her. And of course, I point this out because of, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, famously, Jesus uh, has this cup in mind. And he said, if if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, Mm. may your will be done. And of course... You know, Jesus took the cup of our just desserts, yes. as, it, as it were, and yeah. he takes it, uh, uh, you know, for us. And so that imagery there, we've seen, you know, we see it in, in the other prophets, but we see it here again in uh, Ezekiel. In chapter 24, now we have the, this uh, marks the beginning of the siege uh, yes. of Jerusalem. So in, and this is given a date in the ninth year, in the 10th month, on the 10th day, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, record this date. So this, this is 588 BC. Uh, The siege is going to end in 586 BC. The fight, the final destruction of the city is going to happen in 586 BC. So record this date, this very date. Because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Mm. Now, remember, it took a long. There's no phone lines. Yeah. Oh, this is what's they going didn't on. Have email back in those days. That's or right. Messenger. No, that's that's right. So it would take often months for this message to get uh, back. to get back that, to that distance. Right. So mm. he says, "Mark the day," and and the idea is so that it will be known that you've told it well so yeah. because a messenger a messenger is going to come yeah. and the messenger is going to come and say on this day uh, Jerusalem was laid siege and after the destruction mm-hmm. and so he says mark the date so that you know that this has all been predicted which means everything else that Ezekiel has said also can be trusted exactly yeah. that's right so he again we have a prophetic uh, act put on the cooking pot put it on and uh, put in put into it uh, pieces of meat so the pot represents Jerusalem, yeah. the meat represents the inhabitants. Bring it to boil. It's an, basically a way of saying things are now heating up, right? The people in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not a, no longer a place of safety and salvation. It has now become a pot, a boiling uh, pot. Uh, so it's a bleak uh, outlook here. Now, uh, around this time, Ezekiel's wife dies, Stu. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is interesting. And we've seen uh, before how Ezekiel is called to act out the uh, these oracles in very costly ways to mm, him. Well, mm, here yeah. he is forbidden from mourning his wife. Now, when I say forbidden from mourning his wife, Outwardly, anyway. it doesn't mean that he can't be yeah. sad. He is forbidden from observing the normal customary yeah. mourning activities that would happen for about a month. So. Yeah. It was always a communal thing, so the community would come together, mm. and Ezekiel and his wife were very connected into the community. Mm. So imagine mm. someone, even in our context, something like this would cause a stir, but in that context, yeah. when the death of anyone prompted this this customary mourning and so forth, to not do that. That would grab everyone's attention pretty quickly. That's right. And, and, the, and, 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 and interesting that refers, because if you remember earlier, God had told him to groan which was the outward sort of yep. expression of grief for what was going to happen at Jerusalem. Now yep. he's saying you can't groan. That's right. You have to you have to not even show and, and as you say, all the other That's customary right. traditions. So, you know, it was It's pretty- interesting, isn't it, that he, he has been told to observe in anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem, observe the customary mourning. Yeah. Uh, and now that his wife dies, no, because 
the people in Jerusalem are not going to have a chance to mourn. They're not going to have a chance to bury their dead because yeah. you would bury your dead outside the walls yeah. of the city. They're not going to be able to do that. Mm. So there's there's not going to be any funeral stuff going on here. And also they're going to be taken uh, into exile before they can bury their dead and so forth. So, I mean, so Ezekiel's actually is feeling the consequence for himself personally of what's going to be happening. That's for right. Those, those so he's told as, you know, as when he was told to observe a near starvation siege diet, Stu, you know, for about a year. Now he's being told to go through this same deprivation, not being able to to mourn his own wife. And this, again, is going to get people's attention. I mean, this is enormous what's happening here and and, and very impacting for the people uh, back then. Uh, There's a a tragedy in verse 21, Stu. Say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'm about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes. And they would never have thought that this would happen. Surely God will save his temple. Temple, And and in fact, it was unusual for conquering armies uh, often to tear down places of worship around this time because there was enough they were superstitious enough not to mention that you tear down the walls and everything but yeah, yeah. and and Nebuchadnezzar would not have done this except that it had just gotten to this place where the whole thing was ridiculous and yeah. and they were rebelling against him so many times over and over again so that that's why he en- ends up destroying the city the way that he does but there's an element of grief here. You know, I'm about to desecrate my sanctuary. So again, he says in verse 24, Ezekiel will be a sign to you. You will do just as he has done when this happens. You will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Again, just noticing the frequency of that statement. When this happens, you, you will know. know that I am the Lord uh, because you will know that I've predicted it. I've sent my prophet. You better know that I am God over everything, even what's happening there, what's happening here in Babylon. And what's going to happen. And what's going to happen. And soon, and in the next chapter, yep. what's happening in the nations. Yes. So now we have oracles against the nations. Chapter 25. Yep. That's right. Right. And it's interesting that he says there that you still have the repetition of this formula because it says when I inflict punishment on you know uh, Ammon and Moab and Edom, then they will know that I, I am, am the Lord. Lord. Yeah. So they will know that I am the Lord too. And Philistia uh, as well. So that's the, that's the big theme that even works through there. So that yeah. they would know that it's not their gods that are, that are ultimately in control, that Yahweh is uh, God above all the gods. With all of the these oracles against the nations, and that's what we get here now. Again, this can be, I think, for people difficult reading because, like, what's yeah, yeah. what's you know, what's all this? What's the point of all of this? Well, the point is, is that Yahweh is show, showing his sovereignty. They are going to be punished. The whole land is going to be punished. It's not just uh, Israel and Judah. There's this general judgment that's coming upon the land, and and particularly those around Israel, they had rejoiced. God knew yeah. we would be rejoicing in in Israel and Judah's uh, downfall. Yeah, interesting. There's seven nations that are yeah. listed here. The sense of completeness. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. And and the idea here is that this judgment is coming upon these seven nations. And normally, see, remember the Egypt the, the situation in Egypt during the Exodus. So Egypt was judged, but the the punishment passed over the Israelites. Yes. But now the now the judgment does not pass over the Israelites. This is the key thing here. Right. So so he's saying it's not just coming on you. It's not just about you. I'm I'm judgment is coming on that part of the world. Yes. And you are not going to be spared. That's yeah, the right. That's the key thing there. And the there's a focus here on 
Tyre on the Phoenicians, which is Tyre and Sidon. Yep. Tyre and Sidon were both Phoenician states. And I'll say something about uh, the Phoenicians in a moment because it's very important. And Egypt. So we have long sections here. Mm. Uh, why the focus on uh, on the Phoenicians and on Egypt? Because they actually withstood that initial incursion. So when Jerusalem was destroyed during the same campaign, the other nations, Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, were all destroyed as well. But Tyre and Egypt still hold out. And so there are these prolonged oracles for them so that people know that they're not going to miss out. They're not going to miss out. You know what I mean? Because, <laughs> yep. you know, they're standing they're standing tall and proud. Oh, look at us. We've been able to withstand. Yeah. And they were probably incursion. two very powerful, two of, other than Babylon, two of the other most powerful kind of, well, certainly Egypt. Tyre was probably more known as the commercial hub of the world, really, the known yeah. world at the time. But certainly sig- both of them very significant nations and cities. Yeah, that's that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so it's worth saying something uh, about them. So the the Phoenicians, this is Tyre and Sidon. Yep. Now, in it's Mark chapter 7, there's a story about a Syro-Phoenician woman uh, who expresses great faith. It's, the story is recorded in Matthew chapter 15 as well. So she's, she's from that, you know, from Part that of sort of area. Yep. So Tyre and Sidon uh, are two Phoenician states. The Phoenicians were so powerful because they were merchants, shipping merchants. They were mm. shipbuilders and famous sailors. Mm. When Jonah fled from the Lord, it was in a Phoenician ship that mm. he went from Tarshish. So this is this is an enormously powerful nation state. They had Tyre was built just off uh, offshore. It was like an island city, mm. so very defensible, a little bit like Florence. Well, there were two parts was of it. Wasn't there was the Tyre Island, which was a, yeah. pretty much a walled yeah. island. Then there was the inland or the yeah, on land, right. and that really just was there to supply water and supplies to yeah. the walled city, yeah, which right. was which was on the island. Interesting. Also, Tyre was where Jesus went when he when the Jews just weren't. Going to be yeah. listening, and he goes to Tyre and spends yeah. seven days. I think it is, was seven yeah, nights with his disciples in Tyre. Yeah, that's know, right. So. Yeah, and and it's interesting that well, because it's the the Phoenicians were referred to as Canaanites actually yes, when that's it right. talks about Canaanites because the Phoenicians were the the most powerful of the Canaanites, mm. um, arguably the sort of ruling presence in that region. Mm. So. Canaanites is often used in the Bible to refer to all of the people west of the Jordan. Uh, but actually, it was the Phoenicians that really were. So that's why in Matthew f- uh, 15, uh, the this Syrophoenician woman is also referred to as a Canaanite woman. Right. Um, and it's interesting that she becomes, you know, the two great examples of faith in the Gospels during the ministry of Jesus are the, the faith Centurion. of the centurion, the Roman, Roman centurion, centurion, right? Yeah. And the faith of the uh, Syrophoenician or yeah. Canaanite woman. Yeah. So even in those days... So this, this was it the was woman whose son, powerful. whose child was, or I think it was her son, was suffering from yeah. a really severe illness, and and Jesus came and healed. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah. The other interesting thing about Tyre, which I did a little bit of research on this, because I'm reading through this passage and going, man, Tyre gets a lot of attention here. Yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, and we'll, we'll come to a number yeah. of the reasons. But the interesting thing I discovered was a lot of its wealth was actually produced from exporting purple dye because it was very rare. And they knew how to make it um, and, and could make it, had the resources yeah. to make it. And, of course, p- 
purple then became, because of its rarity, became yeah. known as the royal color. Yeah. And, of course, Jesus had a purple robe put on him by Caesar at the point of his yeah. uh, crucifixion. And so purple was, you know, the whole color purple was a big income earner yeah. for uh, for the city of Tyre at, at the yeah. time. So a massive trading kind of mm. city. Uh, yeah. Solomon was quite, mm. uh, quite closely connected yes. with Tyre. He was, in fact, he was quite dependent upon them. This became a problem. For Solomon, the cedars of Lebanon that went into the temple. That's right, via Tyre because they had the ability to ship them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yep. And a lot of a lot of his trade mm. was, I mean, he was utilizing their their ships and their sailors for his trade. Even right down in the Gulf of Aqaba, which is right sort of right down south. Yeah. And uh, even there, there were ships from Tyre that were, you know, that were shipping his copper and so forth. Mm. So this becomes an issue, of course, that. Those that alliance in Israel becomes an issue because they become so dependent uh, on the Phoenicians on Tyre and Sidon that this is why Jezebel Jezebel is a Phoenician princess and yeah. she uh, really holds sway over Ahab. So the most famous kind of evil, one of the most famous evil uh, people in the history of uh, of Israel in the Old Testament, Jezebel, you know, is mm. uh, is a, mm. a Phoenician uh, as well. So they they established. They, they were also the great colonizers uh, in the ancient world. So they they originated uh, out of the area of Canaan, yes. uh, and then they went to they established the city of Carthage, yep. uh, Cyprus. They went right. They had colonies in Spain as well. So they went all over the place. Yeah. These guys yeah. and Baal worshippers. Baal was and they were essential. Baal worshippers. That's right. So this oracle is against this city of of Tyre, which when when Nebuchadnezzar does come against, so so they they don't get off scot free as as no. he prophesies, and he's using all of the standard prophetic language here. And yes. what happens eventually is that there's a siege, now, because it, yeah. they're they're an island, island. He doesn't oh. get in as such, but uh, but he does starve them out. Basically. He does starve it's them out, and they do yeah. surrender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a long so. Time. Um, so they do fall in that sense uh, under the king of Babylon, and uh, thirteen year siege and very costly to the Babylonians. Yeah, I that's suspect. right. So he was probably pretty angry. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> and actually, Ezekiel uh, says later on uh, that he does he comes away without. And how does he put it? No spoil. Or yeah, without no any spoil. For the yeah, no payment for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, probably what happened is that they surrendered and it became a puppet state, yeah. which I think we we know yeah. did happen. Yeah, that's uh, of right. Babylon, but it meant they couldn't ransack the city and take all the spoils. Yeah. Uh, uh, so he then went on to Egypt, of course. That's right. So that this is, the, yeah, so this is a modern day sort of Lebanon now yes. is where, yeah. uh, where these cities are. So uh, Ezekiel is told to take up a lament, like a funeral lament uh, over Tyre, which that's mm. in chapter 27. Mm. So um, he composes this lament. He laments over Tyre, gives this sort of funeral, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, yep. this funeral lament. Uh, even before Tyre has uh, has fallen, and then we have this interesting section in chapter twenty eight, which is a prophecy against the king of Tyre, and uh, it's really against the pride. and And here, uh, Tyre as this very very powerful group in the and and colonizers as well, so going out and conquering other places. Uh, and taking bail with them, and taking bail with them—that's mm. important. Yeah, and so they are, and and th- so you know, Tyre is indicted for this godlike pride. Yeah, in uh, right at the start there in chapter two, in ver- uh, sorry, no, verse two, two of yeah. 
chapter 28. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God, he says. Though you think you are as wise as a God, are you wiser than Daniel? Interesting. There's another uh, reference to uh, to Daniel, who was mm. you know renowned for his wisdom. Is no secret hidden. So he's speaking to the pride of uh, of Tyre, and then he says, "Take up a lament." Having lamented against Tyre itself, he says, "Take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre." Now, the interesting thing about this section, this is from verse eleven onwards, Stu. Uh, is the way that it actually references Genesis 1 to 3. Yeah. Uh, and there's not really much in the scriptures that directly references those earlier chapters. Uh, it definitely sits in the background. Mm. Um, but this is a direct allusion to this to this Genesis, this early Genesis tradition, which shows that this is already around. Uh, now, as a lot of people say that, those early chapters of Genesis, at least, um, were written in during the uh, during the exile or after or sometime. Right now, it, it may be that they received a final formal form in that period. That there's no problem with that. Mm-hmm. But what this shows is that that tradition actually has been part has been with the Jewish people already yes. uh, up to this point, yeah. right? Because they're you know this is early on in the exile, and there's this assumption here. Uh, on the part of of Yahweh and of Ezekiel, that that they'll get this illusion that this is a very commonly understood thing, yeah. and so the uh, the you know the story of Genesis one to eleven, which we associate with Moses, you know we talk about the books of Moses, yes, and and I think there's no reason to doubt that this that this was had been carried you know right from that time, uh, and perhaps it may, as I said, may have received its final form, literary form. In the uh, in the exilic Excellent. period, but yeah. certainly they've carried it with us. And and one senses that even you know Genesis chapter one is is there's so much rhythm and and structure to that passage. It it you know it it looks like the sort of thing that was created almost for memorization. Yeah, you know, right. even the nu- the amount so of times that yeah, certain right. words are used. There's yep. you know this word ten times, this word ten times, this yes. word seven times. Yeah. You know, uh, so it was a very core tradition. But it's interesting. That that tradition is actually now uh, referred to here. So, it, with respect to the king of Tyre, so Ezekiel says, "You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you: carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx." Now, when we think of precious stones, uh, particularly, uh, we think of the breastplate of the of the priest. Yes. There's some perhaps uh, illusion that there, there's was like this priest like role or authority given to human beings uh, in the garden on the day you were created. They were prepared. Now it goes on to say in verse fourteen though you were anointed as a guardian cherub. You, you remember the the cherub in the in the garden with the yeah. with a flaming sword uh, that, that and they had a guardian role. Right. Um, uh, for so I endured. You were on. Uh, on the holy mount of God, you walked among the fiery stones. So garden and mountain sort of go together. In in fact, you know, we could probably see the Garden of Eden almost uh, as what would later be seen as almost like a mountain shrine. 
you know, the Garden of Eden was this sacred space, and yep. sacred spaces were off, you know, were often subsequently uh, on on mountaintops, which was seen to sort of overlap with the heavens in in, in the ancient uh, way of thinking. So, uh, so the mountain of God is another way of speaking of this sacred space, the Garden of Eden. You know, it says. Um, you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found uh, in you. And then he says, so I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you guardian cherub from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and, and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuary. So I've made fire come out from you, and it consumed you. So the, there's this sense that the that the judgment was already within. And now, yeah. what do you think, Stu? I, I when you read this, it's you, you think to yourself, "Hang on, are, who are we talking about? Yeah, here? that's right. <laughs> are we totally. talking about? Uh, this doesn't sound like it's talking about the king of Ty. It sounds like at first it's. Uh, sounds like it's talking about Adam and Eve, and then uh, it sounds like a guardian cherub. And uh, f- from the intertestamental period, even through to the early church period, this was uh, interpreted as uh, talking about Satan, essentially. Mm. Um, or Lucifer before or, or Satan. Or Lucifer, that's right. Essentially yeah. before Satan, yeah. in a sense. But so this then, fallen angel. Yes, um, correct. So this, <laughs> this is the thing that there appears to be this, again, this tradition about this, that we don't have the information, no. apart from Genesis, of course, we yeah. have Genesis. But there, there seems to be uh, another tradition out there or some framework in which this was understood. And I think this is characterizing the king of Tyre with this demonic pride that we see both in Adam and Eve, but also in Satan himself. And and we would uh, identify, well, not, not everyone does, but... Uh, I certainly would identify Satan with Lucifer and the devil and so forth. Uh, I think there's a pretty consistent, you know, consistent sort of identification uh, throughout we the scriptures. We also a little bit of a reference maybe to this in Job 1 where it says, God gathered and Satan came amongst yeah. the people. Where have you been? I've mm. been, you know, on the earth. So it's like, it, it is interesting because it's like he, this in this reference in Ezekiel, this, whoever this is, yeah. is in heaven, uh, a bit like, Satan was yeah, that's right. In Job's situation. yeah, so it's it's now it's, now there are some people that say that this the that the Satan there is a is a is like a kind of an accusing spirit or right, or okay. something. But I mean, I, I think the best way to understand this consistently is to see this as you know as essentially the same identifying the same being the same fallen angel. I mean, mm. it's it's hard to know for but sure. But essentially, it's really about the sin and evil in in the heart. That's right of the city. That's in right. Reality. But in, this is in, the ruler of Tyre. This is who this is. That's right. You know, yeah. So, but what's interesting is that it's referring to this the, the Genesis one to three tradition yeah. Yeah. to cast him. This is so. So his sin becomes uh, an example of a of a universal human predicament. Yeah. Uh, that actually has its or- origin in a some kind of spiritual realm. You yeah. know, some kind of spiritual fall as well, like the the fall of a of a guardian cherub who was thrown to earth, and all of that is together. You know, there it's all part of the same thing. Yes. So the rebellion of the king of Tyre as a worldly authority with a lot of power, in in cahoots with the sin of the original pair because mm. that affected uh, everyone, which and their sin in turn was in cahoots with the sin of this guardian cherub, yeah. uh, Lucifer. Um, so. Very interesting section there 
in the in chapter yeah, yeah. twenty eight. Can I just allude to a, a historical thing that yeah. I found really interesting um, before we move in beyond that in terms of Tyre, because Ezekiel's prophecy talks about Tyre being completely destroyed. Yeah. In fact, it talks about the the rubble of Tyre essentially being draw, draw, drawn into the sea, and we actually don't see that happen with the Babylonian. Uh, conquest and in essence the no, walled right. city the island actually stays intact um, yep. and becomes a, a puppet state for want of a yep. better word for the babylonians but 250 years later uh alexander the great comes along and he does totally destroy yeah. the city and in fact he destroys the land city first so remember tyre was an island city yep. and then also part of it was on yep. land like a suburb i mm. guess uh and he destroys the land base one because of course he didn't have ships yeah he had foot soldiers which isn't a lot of help mm. when the island's a <laughs> kilometer out in sea but in destroying that city he then builds a land bridge mm. across to this island by yep. dragging as ezekiel says yep. your rubble and your rock will be drawn into the sea by dragging it into the sea yeah and ultimately does that's right completely destroy the island city of Tyre. so it, it, you know yep. what ezekiel said in the end, fully came to pass. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, amazing it's amazing what these it? ancient conquerors did. Yeah. I mean, the classic one, and, and we'll tell this story when we get to when we get to Daniel, is what Cyrus did to yeah. conquer the city of Babylon. That yeah, story yeah. is so full yeah, on. Yeah. But so we'll the, get to that. So the interesting thing is that Tyre was never on island again. It's yeah. today, so this day, it's now a peninsula yeah. because of the works that were done by Alexander That's right. the Great. And, uh, and so, as it says, it will never exist again. Well, it yeah. doesn't. And, and, the and but their Tyre currency, tell us about you. You were, yeah, you were well, I, about I also currency. discovered that the currency, because um, Tyre was such a major trading partner and that, and that continued for quite some time, uh, the, the shekel was actually the Tyre currency that mm. was, and it had the image of Baal on it. Mm. And in Jesus' time, the shekel that's referred to, both the shekel mm. that Judas would have used or uh, would have been paid to, to, um, to betray Jesus, but also the temple tax in Jerusalem mm. was collected, had to be converted into the shekels. Mm. So when Jesus is casting out the money changers in the, in the temple courts, where we're essentially there as everyone's coming, uh, they're tr- tr- trading there or transfer, tr- uh, transferring their Roman currency mm. potentially into shekels, mm. uh, those guys are actually providing tire shekels mm. with Bale's image, or not Bale, um, what was this, the Bale, Malgart, I think yeah, yeah. it is, this image yeah. on it. So wow. just interesting how all these things tie together, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's very interesting. In At the end of chapter 28, it says this, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered. So this is oracles of hope, which are scattered throughout these essentially prophecies of doom. But he says, he goes on to say here, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. That is by them being uh, gathered uh, back. And then they will live in their own land and, and, and so on. It's interesting statement. Uh, and, and I just was thinking about this, Stu, about what it, what it means for God to be proved holy. What does it mean for God to be proved holy? The sense here is that this is a, this is a world in which there were many different gods. And what is the consistent thing that God wants people to know? And this is also what comes out of this re- repeated phrase throughout the book of Ezekiel. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Is that God 
doesn't want to be identified with all of these other gods. I'm not a spiritual being like this. Don't treat me like another god. I'm absolutely distinct and above and transcendent. That um, There is the vast, infinite difference between me and these other gods, which are really not gods. I mean, the idols, in this, they're, they're not really gods. It's not denying that there are some spiritual entities perhaps uh, be, uh, behind these, but there's this consistent message, particularly as comes through the Psalms, that God is far, Yahweh is far above all other gods, you know, yeah. Psalm uh, 98 and so yeah. forth. You know, he is far above all other gods. So mm. that's the, that's what it means for God to be proved holy. It means that that he is transcendent and distinct from any other spiritual beings, uh, far above and in complete sovereign control uh, mm. of everything. So my translation again, just uh, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples where they are scattered and demonstrate my holiness through them in the sight of the nations. They will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's almost like I'm, I'm true to my word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So you're reading from the, Uh, I'm reading from the uh, HSCSB. Yeah. Which is now the uh, Christian standard Bible. Yeah. It's now the Christian standard Bible. I'm reading from the NIV. NIV. That actually rates really well. I was reading some ratings of translation and the CSB, uh, the CSB actually rates uh, really well. Um, Anyway, that's just an aside (laughs) talking about translation. So we uh, move into chapter 29 and now we have all of this material about Egypt. Egypt. Mm. And, and this is important because, of course, you know, when people think of archaeology and ancient history, generally Egypt, Egypt. is, the, is yeah. the, I, I guess, the most famous because of what they've left behind. I mean, the, you know, the pyramids yeah. and the pharaohs and the, you know, the, all of the archaeological stuff, you know, Tutankhamun and all yeah, of that. Yeah. You know, this is the, probably in some ways has been the most fascinating period. Uh, of of ancient yeah. history for archaeologists, yeah. or even anyone, if you think about ancient civilizations, people would probably first of all go straight to yeah. The they Egyptians. think of Egypt. That's yeah. right. And actually, they were enormously powerful, yeah. Yeah. enormously powerful. And uh, and even uh, even at this time now, around this time, they're just coming to the end of their power. Pretty much, uh, the Battle of Carchemish is is really they withdraw. So they but they do lose. They do lose that battle, and the Babylonians, because they uh, it's um, Egypt and Assyria are fighting yes. together against the Babylonians. Babylonians win, Egypt withdraw. What is significant about these prophecies is that Ezekiel is essentially prophesying the fact that this is the end of Egypt's greatness. Yeah. And it actually is. Yep. It's that they they are no longer after the period. Once they're conquered uh, by the Babylonians, once the Babylonians do sweep in and they take over, they never really recover, recover. their greatness no. again. This is the end of the famous ancient Egypt that everyone knows about. Yes. Uh, they, they they're all now you know in the future they're going to be an important part of the Greek Empire. So it's not that Egypt isn't going to become an important center. And of course. Alexandria becomes a very famous center of the Greek empire later on. But this is not Egypt anymore. This is not an independent uh, Egypt. This is the end. And Ezekiel prophesies it. Ezekiel's basically saying, you are not going to rise again. And at a a time where they couldn't possibly, no one could possibly imagine that that would be true. Oh, that's right. I mean, at this point in time, the people in exile are probably still hoping that the yeah. superpower of Egypt is going to rescue them from the Babylonians, yeah. even though Egypt's right. been telling them that ain't going to happen. Egypt was like, that was like, what? Yeah, you know exactly. Uh, just note verse 7 here, Stu, that here 
Egypt is being blamed for being a, a splintered staff. The Jews, uh, Judah, in her last days, depended on Egypt to save them, yeah. and e- Egypt um, made all of these promises, but uh, didn't come through, and so that became, you know, so in a sense, and actually, this is in. Isaiah chapter 36 in verse 6, Isaiah actually warned, this is the interesting thing about this, Isaiah warned uh, Judah, don't lean on, on Pharaoh. On the Egyptians. Yeah. Do not lean on the on, on, on the Egyptians mm. because they will be uh, like a splintered staff. You're going to injure yourself by leaning uh, on the staff. But even though Isaiah warned the people of Judah not to do that, and though she still does, and and of course the staff is a splintered staff, and all of that came about, yet yet Egypt is still blamed for yes. being a splinter staff. Yes, B- because again, remember the covenant is those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. So even though uh, people of Judah should not have turned and relied on uh, Pharaoh in the first place, but the fact that Pharaoh still let them down works against uh, the Egyptians. Yeah, right. So that's an interesting yep. moment there. And he uh, even uses the same, you know, in, as you say in verse 7, when, when Israel grasped you by the hand, you splintered, tearing all their shoulders. And yep. when they leaned onto you, you shattered and made all their hips unsteady. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So uh, so the oracles uh, over Egypt, we've got lots of material here, Stu, and, and we, we don't really need to no. get uh, into this uh, in any detail. But again, you have the repeated formula. I just keep repeating. Uh, and then they will know that I'm the Lord. They will know that I'm the Lord when uh, when I do this. And so Pharaoh was cast as a, as a great cedar of Lebanon. Yes. Uh, that is that is formed. This is a very important moment in, in Egyptian history. And as uh, in Ezekiel is calling in world history. Yeah. Uh, and as Ezekiel's calling it. Egypt is going to go down. And interestingly, in chapter 31, he says that Egypt is going to go down into Sheol with the, uh, actually in chapter 32, this is, Egypt goes down into the realm of the dead, into the part of the realm of the dead or Sheol that is reserved for the uncircumcised. The interesting thing is the Egyptians actually did practice circumcision. So he's talking to, he's talking about a uncircumcised in the sense of not set apart for yeah. God that they, they the, the Egyptians are going to go into the deepest part of uh, of the grave so this is a very decisive oracle yeah. against there's no coming a, back against from, yeah. and and this is remember this is against a nation that have figured since Genesis chapter 12 we're going right. This is what's significant about Egypt. Right from Genesis chapter twelve, when Abraham goes down into Egypt, remember Pharaoh takes uh, Abraham's wife and suffers the curse. Well, you know, right from that point through to the Exodus, and the, Egypt has played a major part. Yeah, of course, uh, Egypt would because they were such a key player in the ancient world. But they have played a very big part uh, in the in the history uh, of Israel. And Judah and uh, and here Ezekiel uh, refers to this final downfall. So this is this is God ruling over the nations. Not mm. this is not just a parochial God of one nation. This is uh, a sovereign God who rules over all and is declaring the downfall of nations. Is declaring things that are happening even while they're you know casting their lots and and seeking their omens. God calls it first, right? God God determines the outcome of even those things. This is uh, a sovereign God who rules over all. And the most important thing for us to to know is to know this 
this, God. And this is right through the prophecies of Ezekiel. I'm going to do this. Whether you suffer punishment or whether you suffer redemption, it is all so that you would know who is God. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. Thank you.